God's Word is alive. It is the story of God revealing His glory to men and women and young men and young women and children who are dead in sin. When we were dead in sin, God sent his son so that we might have life and have it more abundant. Amen? All throughout the scripture are these amazing stories that we call miracles. They're not all that miraculous to God because he can do anything, anytime, in any way he wants, right? But to us, they're miracles because he interrupts what we normally think of life and how it happens. We know, for example, no one can walk on water. God interrupts, creates a miracle, and does what he can do any time and invites Peter to walk on water. To interrupt what we think of as the normal flow with something eternal, something powerful. Jesus turns water into wine. Moses stands and God parts a Red Sea. God does the miraculous that we might see his power against what we know of as the normal flow of life. You're with me so far, amen? So of all the miracles that God does throughout Scripture that are miracles to us but natural to him, perhaps the greatest of all miracles are resurrections. When someone who was dead lives... When someone who had breathed their last breathes again. When someone who had had sickness, had tragedy, and their life went out of them, when they were dead, unable to breathe, eat, feel, speak, God breathed into them and they lived again. We've been looking at stories of resurrection for the past two months. We're in the final day of our Alive series today. I want us to think for just a moment about these resurrections we've looked at. We've looked at uh, eight up to this point. And I want us to think for just a moment about God's greatest resurrection. Of all the resurrections, which was the greatest? Well, there's so many. When we go back to the very first one we talked about, we talked about uh, a woman who was a widow, and she had a son. And they didn't have much. In fact, they thought they were about to die because they had so little. There was famine in the land. And in fact, her son did get sick and died. But there was a prophet who was living with them at the time. This prophet was Elijah. And when this woman was without hope, when her son had died, Elijah said, let me have him. He took him to his room upstairs. Elijah stretched himself out on the boy. And the boy comes to life. This beautiful picture of Jesus giving his life for us. And you think this is the first resurrection in Scripture. This was the first one. Is this God's greatest resurrection? No. It wasn't the greatest resurrection. Maybe it was the story of the man who died. It looks as though from Scripture it happened in battle. And it's a time when Elisha himself has died. He's been buried for some time, and they haven't seen God work in the way they had before, and the people are beginning to doubt. And this one man, we don't even get his name, but the Scripture says he died, and his, his soldiers, his friends were with him. They, in a panic, they take him and they throw him into the tomb where Elisha is buried. And when his body hits Elisha's bones, boom, he lives. 
No one said anything. No one did anything. His body touched Elisha's bones, and he lived. That's different than any of the other miracles of resurrection we see in the Scripture. Is this God's greatest? Surely this has to be one of God's greatest because it was so unusual. No. This wasn't God's greatest resurrection. Maybe it was the, the Shunammite woman and her family and the situation that happened there. Maybe it was the widow of Nain, her son. Maybe it was the daughter of Jairus. Maybe it was one of these situations where it was a family member, where God stepped in and rescued a family member, a child that had died. Hopes and dreams, life in front of them, tragedy takes them, and God steps in, intervenes, and life is brought back. Surely, this is one of God's greatest resurrections because it, it comes into a family situation, and the, the child gets to live the rest of their life knowing what's happened. No, those are not any of the greatest resurrections. Surely it was then Lazarus. Lazarus, the New Testament, the one that Jesus comes to his tomb. He's been dead four days. That's one day more than Jesus himself will have been dead when he dies and is placed in a tomb. Four days, Jesus himself comes to the tomb. Jesus himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Surely this is one of God's greatest resurrections. It's where Jesus proclaims he is the resurrection. It's where Jesus speaks to Lazarus and he comes out of the tomb. Surely this is God's greatest resurrection. No, it wasn't. Surely then it has to be that of Jesus. The Son of God comes to earth. He walks in obedience to the Father. He's despised. He's rejected of men. He's taken to the cross where he has been beaten, tortured, a crown of thorns placed on his head, and he is crucified. There he not only bears in himself the physical pain of crucifixion, but he bears in his body the guilt and the payment for our sin. A moment so dark that the skies grow dark. A moment so heavy that all turn away to not look. A moment so heavy for Jesus himself that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. He's placed in a tomb. But on the third day, early in the morning, they come to the tomb to see what was the normal progression of things. A dead body still dead. But God interrupts the natural with the supernatural and Jesus is resurrected. Jesus comes out of the grave. Jesus defeats sin. Jesus defeats death. Jesus defeats Satan. And in that moment, he is the conqueror of all. Surely this is the greatest of God's resurrections. No. It's not. It's Jesus. He's God's son. In some ways, you'd almost expect it. He's victorious, has always been. It's a story 
that I don't take any glory away from this morning when I say it wasn't the greatest of God's resurrections. We turn to the book of Acts and we see Peter in a situation where a woman has died, Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, as we saw last week. And now the power of Jesus is going to work through Peter. This will be the first time in the New Testament that it's happened. She dies. Being a woman of faith, she dies. And Peter goes into the room where she is, shuts everyone else out because of their unbelief, and God works through Peter. And Peter speaks to Dorcas and says, Arise. And here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, Dorcas arises. Surely this must be one of God's greatest, if not the greatest, resurrection. It happens after the resurrection of Jesus. It happens after the coming of the Holy Spirit. It happens at a time like ours today in which we live. Surely this was God's greatest resurrection. It wasn't. The scripture goes on to record in the New Testament the greatest resurrection. It says in Colossians chapter 2, and you being dead in your trespasses. Uh-oh. You see, it's one thing for Jesus to defeat Satan. It's one thing for Jesus to pay for sin. It's one thing for Jesus to step out of the grave victorious. But it's quite another when someone like you and I, wrapped up in sin, caught in guilt, dead to God, unable to know him, unable to sense him, filled with our guilt, our shame, our bitterness, filled with depression, filled with no hope, no insight, no direction, no peace at all. When God steps in and he says to you who are absolutely dead in your trespasses and sin, when he says to you, believe, and you do, and there's resurrection, that is the greatest resurrection. Amen? Yes, it is. For me, it happened at 1910 Southwest Moreland, here in Ovilla, sitting on a couch one afternoon. I'd invited the youth pastor to come over because I'd been going to church, and I was hearing the gospel, and all of a sudden I was filled with this awareness that I was on a path to nowhere. I was on a path to hell. I had my plans for my life, but they had no, no presence of God in them. I was struggling with doubt, and I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with insecurities. I was, I was struggling with fears. I didn't know what to do with my guilt. I was imploding. And there that day when the gospel was shared with me, I believed. I didn't understand what I was even getting into that day. But what I've gotten into has set me free. Amen. What I've gotten into has given me life. And I, who was dead in trespasses, became alive that day. Amen. Where there was fear, depression, anxiety, uncertainty, now there was peace 
Now there was freedom. Now there was hope. Now there was life. The verse goes on to say in Colossians, you who were dead in your trespasses, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, every one of them, the past ones, the current ones, and the future ones, all forgiven, paid for, removed. You have been made alive. Amen? I'm telling you, when a heart that was calloused, couldn't relate, couldn't feel, I don't know what your situation was, but I do know that when I've seen that happen, when I've seen a heart that was calloused, couldn't feel, couldn't relate, filled with self-obsession, filled with overwhelming fears, filled with guilt, when that heart recognizes its death, when it recognizes their problem, and they turn to the Savior, and he makes them alive, when that heart all of a sudden begins to love his wife, when he hadn't before. When that heart begins to love her husband as she hadn't before. When a heart turns to love its children. When a parent loves its children all of a sudden and a child is turned toward its parents. When a heart that was broken, when a heart that was depressed becomes healed, there is life all of a sudden. It's resurrection life. When that heart all of a sudden begins to beat for God, when that heart begins to beat with compassion for others, when that heart begins to beat with a desire to worship, when that heart begins to beat with love for Jesus, there has been resurrection. And that's why we can say these are the greatest of God's resurrections. Every story in the Bible of resurrection was a story of when a physical heart was made to physically live again. That does not compare to a heart that's been dead being made alive again. A heart being resurrected is far greater than just a life, physical life, being resurrected. Amen? I love to see a heart come alive. To see a young man beat with passion for the Lord. A young man change his priorities a young man surrender his life to follow Christ. A young girl say, I'm through with all the peer pressure. Now I'm following my Savior. A family that is redeemed and rescued and they love one another in the way they never have before. These are the real glorious resurrections. Our passage today is Colossians chapter 3. It's written to those who have been resurrected. Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn your Bible there, we're going to be in verses 1 through 9. If you've got a Bible app or if you want to follow me on screen, feel free to do so. If you want to take some pictures of the screen as a note, help yourself, it won't bother me a bit. We're looking through this passage today because it's written to new covenant believers who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have come alive, and they are now walking and following Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is going to write to them to say, now that you have been resurrected, let me help you know how to live alive. Interesting that you'd have to have some instruction on how to live alive. 
but we do. You become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are birthed into his family. You are born again. But just like uh, baby Ashton right here on the front row, he needs a little bit of encouragement along the way. Amen? He's not walking yet. He's not crawling yet. He can't even go in and fix himself a pizza in the kitchen yet. He's got he's to be fed. He's got to be changed. He's got to be held. He's got to be comforted. You have to learn how to live when you're alive. Amen? Colossians chapter 3 helps us in that process. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ. In other words, if you have had resurrection happen, if you are now alive, then here's some instruction for you. First, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now in your new life, it's time to pursue some new things. You stop pursuing what you once did. You stop living where you once did live, dead. And you start living where you now are, alive. And you set your seeker on a different direction. You once sought after what could somehow maybe numb your pain. You once sought after whatever could bring you some pleasure. But now you seek those things which are above. Oh, you've got a new, a new passion in your life. You've got a new direction in your life. You've got a new hope in your life. You've got some new loves in your life. And believe it or not, you have to be encouraged in those directions. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above. The things that are higher than what's here. The things that are different than what's here. The things that are above what is here. In fact, seek where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. He's seated there in glory. He's seated there in power. He's seated there in finality, having finished the work and been glorified. Seek Him. Seek after the things that are from Him. Seek a new way of living. You have to intentionally stop doing what you once did, and start doing what he says. You stop and you start seeking. You cut off the land of the dead and you start living in the land of life. You have to say no to some voices here so you can listen to some voices there, amen? You got to shut out the world so you can hear God. You got to shut out some earthly voices that are confusing, that are dragging you down so you can hear the voice of God, so that you can seek. You got to shut this door so you can open this door. You can't keep this door and that door open at the same time. Mm. You got to shut this one and seek this one. Here's our first kind of big point this morning. To live alive, you have to leave your place of death. You know that in each of the stories we've looked at over the past eight weeks, in almost every one of them, the one who came to life had to have some assistance. When Elisha <clears throat> took the son of the widow 
whenever he became alive, the Bible says that he picked him up and he carried him downstairs to his mother. He didn't do that on his own. Elijah did that. Elisha calls the Shunammite woman and says, come and take up your son. There had to be some direction. There had to be some assistance. When Lazarus steps out of the tomb, when Jesus calls him out, the very first instruction that Jesus gives is to his family and friends. You go back and look at the story. It says that Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Set him free from the grave cloths that have been wrapped around him. He can't do that on his own. He needs someone to come along and take the grave clothes off. He's been made alive, but someone's got to help him now that he is alive. you got to leave where you've been to get to where you're going. Let me just say that one more time. you got to leave where you've been to get to where you're going. If you're going into life, you got to leave where there was death. Lazarus couldn't just stay in the tomb and say, Boy, it sure is nice to be living again. No, come on out, Lazarus. Quit staying in the tomb. Get out of there. Get unwrapped. Get back to life. Let's do some things. God's done a work in you. It's time for something new. Jesus told Jairus to give his daughter some food. She could have, you think, well, she couldn't have gotten up and done it herself. No. Jairus had to go get some food for his daughter. Every one of them, there was some instruction given. Peter, when Dorcas is resurrected, it says that he reached out and he helped her up. He gave his hand to her and helped her into the place of the living. Every one of them left the place of death to get to the place of living. You can't get to life if you don't consciously, intentionally leave your place of death. You know, it's a beautiful thing that grace reaches us right where we are. That comes to us in our sin, in fact, in our death. And there, it says in Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And there, the beauty of grace reaches us and rescues us. It doesn't say, clean up your act first, and then we'll talk about this. It doesn't say, get up off your death, and then we'll deal with this. No, in every one of them, grace reached out and brought the resurrection. Grace meets us where we are in our sin. Mercy reaches us in our desperate situation. It's why we as the church can go out into the world today and not say, clean up your act first and then God will love you. But we say, God has loved you and he's proven it in the cross. Grace reaches us while we were still dead. But listen to me carefully. Grace does not leave us in the place of death grace calls us out of the tomb off the table out of the bed 
Grace calls us out of the death and leads us into life. Amen? I've known some believers who, who, who cry grace over their sin. They, they know their sin. They know what they're doing, but they cry grace over it. I'm going to tell you, there is no place for that in Scripture. Grace, the Scripture says, grace teaches us that denying ungodliness, that we walk in truth. It calls us out. It doesn't resurrect us to leave us in the place of death. It calls us out of the death. And some people get that all cloudy. They get that confused in their life. And so they, they have a, a resurrection, but they're still living in their place of death. And they, they get confused. Well, I don't understand why I can't sense God's presence. I don't understand why God isn't blessing my life. I don't understand why my relationships are still just an absolute mess. I don't understand why I don't have any blessing coming into my life, why I don't have any peace about what's going on in my life. It's because you've been resurrected and you're still living in your tomb. You can't live in the place of death and expect God to bless what you're doing. You've got to come out of your place of death. It calls us out. You can't keep living in sin you can't keep following the world. You can't keep doing what you want and wonder why you can't sense the presence of God. He calls you out of the tomb. Grace calls us out to leave behind some old behaviors, some old attitudes, some old thinking patterns, some old beliefs. You got to leave death in the place of death. Now, Paul takes us on here in Colossians chapter 3 and helps us a little bit with what we're talking about. Let's go on here, chapter 3, verse 5. He says, because of all of this, therefore, therefore, in other words, because of what I've said already, therefore, because of this truth that we know, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, therefore, now, you've been resurrected, therefore, now, put to death your members which are on the earth. And in case we needed some clarification, the Holy Spirit gives it. <laughs> Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You cannot stay in the place of death with your fornication, your sexual sin, your immorality, your uncleanness. You can't stay there with your evil passions, your old passions, your old ways. You can't stay there in the place of evil desire that does everything or wants everything counter to what God's wants for your life. You can't stay in the tomb with all that's in the tomb and expect to find life. You've got to put those things, that's what Paul says, to death he doesn't say you have to not listen to them as much as you used to he doesn't say only do that on Thursday nights 
at 10 p.m. because Sunday is still a few days away. He doesn't say, go ahead and let that stay for a while. We'll deal with that later. He says, those specific sins, you must put them to death. Now, this will be a very weak example, but here's something that happens at our house sometimes. I'll be in the kitchen or living room, and all of a sudden, I will hear a shriek from the side of the house that the tailor lives in. I was going to say something else, but I just thought, oh, I'll just say who it is. It's Taylor. And usually, I'll hear this shriek, ah, dad, help. And I'm thinking, what in the world? Was there someone hiding in the shower? Has someone broken into the house? Has something tragic happened in the room? Dad, there's a roach in my bathroom. <laughs> wow. So what I will do is go in. And she's not happy with it just being, you know, shooed away up under her bed. She's not happy with me just kicking it off in her closet. She needs to know that it is dead. You can't just keep it there. You can't just move it around to another part of the room. You've got to get rid of it. Now, see, for me, when I was growing up, about Taylor's age, our problem was scorpions in our house. You don't want to leave a scorpion under the bed in the closet. You want a scorpion dead. I don't want to catch it in a cup and take it outside and set it free. Sorry if that's your deal. I, I know some folks like that who, who will let wasp nests stay around their house, who, who, who say, oh, don't kill the wasps. Yes, if there's a wasp near me, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to run from it. I'm going to get some bug spray. I'm going to drain two cans on that thing until it's gone, right? You know what I'm talking about? I want it dead. I don't want it living. I don't want it staying around. That thing can hurt me, right? I don't want it hurting me. I don't want it hurting anybody else. When you walked out of that grave, it is necessary for you from that point on, anytime you recognize part of your past trying to rear its head, anytime the scorpion of your past tries to raise up, Anytime something nasty tries to rear itself in your life and it's one of these sins or any sin, the Bible says you must not have a conversation with it. You must not play with it. You must not put it in a cup to save it for later. You must put it to death. You got to eliminate it. Amen. The deception of the enemy today in our world is powerful. It's not more powerful than God, but I'm going to tell you, there are people who don't know the power of God, so they get easily bought into the power of the enemy. He's deceptive. He's tricky. He whispers in a way that most people have a difficult time saying no to. He whispers in ways today 
and tries to convince people that that urge that you're feeling is not just a temptation, but it is actually part of you. And that you have to, have to give in to it because it is who you are, not just a temptation from the enemy. It happens like this. A woman, a wife, becomes unhappy in her marriage. And she begins to receive a little bit of encouragement from another man at work. And soon there's more appeal in what he has to say than what her husband has to say. And soon she begins to feel these desires and urges that are no longer for her husband, but have now become very alive by this other man. And she becomes susceptible to a whisper from the enemy in this moment that today uses this lie. This is who you are. You have to give in to it. Because this is who you are. She assumes there's no way out. And she says one day to her husband, I'm leaving you because I've fallen in love with another man. This is now who I am. I cannot say no to the desires in me. It happens this way for a young man who grows up and is rejected by some and falls for the lie that he was not really intended to be born male to begin with or he falls for a lie that other males were created for him and he begins to have a relationship with other men and he falls for the whisper that says This is who you are. You'll never be happy until you give in. The whisper of the enemy. It's a whisper that keeps countless people still in the place of death, though they have been resurrected. It's the voice that whispers to a teenager who's become disillusioned with life and struggles in relationships, not doing well at school, there's conflict at home, and he hears the whisper from the enemy that says, you would be better off taking your life. You'd be better off dead than going through what you're going through. And the whispers continue, and the enemy is clever in that he uses the exact same message, this is who you are. You have no hope. And the young person, without the Spirit of Christ within them, believes the lie, takes their life. When I think about the number of times that lie has been bought, when I think about the number of lives that have been lost, when I think about the number of people who have even professed Jesus Christ, but they still live in the tomb, 
they still live in the place of death. It breaks my heart and it sets me on fire against the voice of death himself. Because he's the one whispering, you can't come out of that tomb. You've been dead. You're still dead. You can't have life. Your only life is a dead life. You'd be better off staying on the table, staying in the bed, staying in the tomb, wrapped up in your grave clothes, than coming out and walking in truth, walking in light, walking in Jesus Christ. And every one of those sins we must put to death. They must not be allowed to live. They must not be allowed to stay in the room. They must not be given a place at the table. They must not be given a voice in our life. They must be mortified, killed, put to death. The Apostle Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says, here's the reason. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. This is, this is the reason that judgment lies upon those outside. This is the reason they're called the sons of disobedience. This is the reason that justice is coming because of these sins. Why? Why would you partake of the same sins that the world is in? Why would you partake in the same sins that's dragging the world to hell? Why would you participate in that? Come out of that tomb. Be done with the grave clothes. Walk in life. Walk in living. You've got to come out the place of death. And the Apostle Paul has a way of just not letting a moment finish without really finishing it. So he goes on a little further. Unless you think, this is hard preaching today, but I don't partake in any of those sins, so I'm okay. Here comes your moment. Verse 8 and 9. But now you, yourselves, whew, like Paul and the Spirit of God knew what was going to happen this morning. He's just talking straight. But you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. And do not lie to one another since you've put off the old man with his deeds. You came out of the grave. You came out. You, you were resurrected. You're done with that. Now it's time to leave all that behind. And let me help you know what some of those things are that you're going to leave behind. Leave behind the anger. That moment where all of a sudden things didn't work out like you wanted them to. That situation that didn't happen like you thought it was going to. And, and anger just started welling up within you. And you, I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know the situation. For every one of us, it's a little different, but for every one of us, almost always the same. Someone said something to you didn't like. The situation didn't pan out like you thought. And man, just, I mean, just incredible hulk. You know, you go on the situation, you, you just get all upset and anger wells up in you. And Paul makes it clear, you've got to put that off because that is what was in the grave, that's what got people there. 
That's what's in the tomb. That's the cloth wrapped around Lazarus. That's what was on the table that Peter reached and pulled Dorcas up out of. He'd be done with all that stuff. Anger, leave it behind. And if that's not enough, he goes on and says wrath. You see, this is where anger just acts out. Wrath is where it's not just bubbling inside and you can kind of control it in front of some other people. Anger does that. You can be angry and you can kind of control yourself and not, not, not let anybody else know you're angry. But wrath... It doesn't hide it anymore. Wrath just comes on out. Wrath just spills out. It, it starts talking angry. It starts acting angry. It's throwing stuff. It's marching around. It's punching stuff. It's kicking stuff. Wrath just spills on out. And, and, and Paul says, that's part of death too. That was what's in the tomb. And we've come out of that. We're not there anymore. You've got to come out of that if you want to experience all that's in life. Malice where you desire for someone else to hurt or suffer, where you would try to find a way yourself to inflict some injury upon someone else if you could, but you can't, so you just sit around and wait for it to happen, and then you gloat so happily when it does. Malice. When you want to see someone else pay for what they've done to you, when you want to see some retribution happen, some revenge happen, he says, that is grave talk. That is tomb stuff. And that you've got to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. Any talk or any thought that distrusts God. A thought or a word that doesn't believe God is able, that God is not powerful, that God is not merciful, that God is not sovereign, that God doesn't love any thought like that. He says, it's time to leave all that stuff behind. That's what got you in the grave to begin with. That's what happens to people who live in the grave. It's time to come out of that anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, and filthy language. It's interesting that he adds a little tag here, out of your mouth. You ever had those words that you just thought in your head, but no one heard? You know? And he says, let, let me just clarify what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about those filthy words that come out of your mouth. The ones that spill out in your anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. The ones that spill out when things don't go your way. That little dictionary of words that you've held on to and cataloged in your mind, and all of a sudden you know just the right moment to use them. Oh, you don't use them when you're with your spouse and you're wanting to be all romantic, but when things don't go your way, all of a sudden, boom, they come out and they fly. And he says, look here, that is what talk was like in the tomb. That is how dead people talk. That is how people talk that have no hope, no peace, no life. They don't see God active today. They don't see God sovereign today. So when the moment happens that they don't like, whoo, the spew happens. And it just comes out. It's flying out. And Paul says, you've got to leave that stuff behind. There's stuff you put to death and there's stuff you've got to put off. Leave it behind. This is a grave clothes stuff. And do not lie to one another. Lying. Not being honest. Not telling the truth. 
covering, making up stories, trying to make yourself look better, trying to keep yourself from looking bad, lying. He says, that's, that's grave stuff. It's time to put that away. You see, when you, when you practice these, when you practice the others, what you're doing is still keeping your death moment intact. You're keeping it all there. You're keeping your grave clothes. You're keeping your tomb. And you hadn't left it. If you have been raised with Christ, if you've been resurrected, seek those things which are above. Come out of the tomb. Leave some stuff behind and put some stuff to death. Bring an end to it. I read the most unusual story recently. It's about a town that exists today in Norway. It's an unusual name town. It's called Longyearbyen. I'd much rather prefer Ovilla. Longyearbyen. It's, um, it's in the northern part of Norway. And the ground there is cold. The air is cold, but the ground is really cold. So much so that they, they call it permafrost. In other words, the soil stays permanently frozen year-round. There's not a springtime where the birds come out and baseball season begins. You know, it's not that. It's frozen ground all year round. They say the, the, the frost goes from 30 to 120 feet deep. I'm not talking about just the top two inches of soil. 30 to 100 feet deep. This room is about 35 to 40 feet from there to here. So 30 to 120 feet deep, the ground is frozen. How would you like to dig some fence hole posts, you know, fence post holes in that? Be miserable. In 1917, there was a strain of flu that went through the town. And many of the residents died from the flu. And they buried the people in the cemetery. How? I do not know. I would have not liked to have been the grave diggers that day. To dig graves in the permafrost. They discovered something interesting, however, <clears throat> that was later confirmed in the early 2000s by scientists. That though these people had died, and they had died from the influenza virus, when they put their bodies in the ground, because of the temperature, the body was dead, but the flu virus was still alive. Bodies exhumed still had live flu virus within them. 
crazy. In a body that was dead was a virus that was alive. And the reason was it had not fully followed the process of death. It hadn't got to the place where it had decomposed. Where there should have been death, there was still something alive. Today, it is illegal to bury a dead body in Long Yerbian. No more cemeteries. They say that people who are approaching death are even carried away to another town so they can die there and be buried so that the process of death can be complete. In believers today, we won't even talk about lost people right now. I want to talk about what's probably the most of us that are in this room, believers. People who have experienced resurrection. You've been made alive by Jesus Christ. There was a day, probably like it was for me in 1981, where someone shared the gospel with you. And where there had been guilt and fear and shame and regrets and no hope for the future, you believed and you came to life. But since that time, you haven't really walked out of the tomb. You're made alive. Maybe you never had anyone come and take the grave clothes off for you. Maybe you never had someone offer their hand to you to raise you up out of your place of death. Or maybe you just refused. Maybe you just said, you know, the stuff that I have done for so long, it's still so comfortable. I'm just used to it. It's just the pattern I've been in. I just kind of got comfortable in it and don't even know what it would be like if I'd let it go. You've walked in anger and wrath so much that it's, it's just the the automatic response for you. You don't even know what it would be like to be in a situation and things not go your way and you not explode. You don't even know what it would be like to just say, it's okay. God has another plan. You don't know what it's like to not just let out a string of whatever, but instead say, God, I trust you in this moment. Friend, I forgive you. You don't even know what that's like because you've done it for so long. You, you've been alive, but you've still been walking and dead. You, you, you're a zombie. You're walking dead. You're not feeling. You're not sensing. And the Spirit of God is speaking today, right now, in this room, because we all confessed at the beginning of our time together that the Word of God is alive, that the Spirit of God is here in this place, and He's going to speak to us today, right? And He is speaking right now. There's some areas in your life that He is speaking to you about, where He is saying, you're alive, and if you 
been made alive. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he's saying to you, it's time to put to death some things that you've been doing. It's time to no longer have the conversation with it. It's time to say, to it. It's time to say, that's it. I'm done. I'm putting you to death. Sin that's held me down. Lust that keeps plaguing my mind. Greed that keeps absorbing my thoughts. Fear that keeps entangling every emotion I've got. It's time to say, enough. Death, you're done. Your days are over. Jesus resurrected me out of you, and you're not going to have any more say in my life. I'm not going to believe your lies. I'm not going to fall for your sins. I'm not even going to do what I used to do when you held me so close. I am walking out of my grave. Amen? Now, I can't enter into your experience today and say, do you see what I'm talking about? I wish I could. But I'm praying today that you will hear the Spirit of God speaking to you. The one who is saying to you, you've been made alive. Come out of that grave. Stop. Stop. Put it to death. Leave it behind. And walk out of that grave. Would you bow your head with me this morning? I want us to take some time right here for each of us just to hear from God and speak to God. Don't be distracted by anyone else in your row. Don't worry about what the person next to you heard, should have heard, needs to hear. I want you just to focus on God and what he has to say to you right now. What is he saying to you that you need to put to death? Would you just say to him this morning, God, I hear you speaking to me today. I've been walking in death even though you've made me alive. I've been resurrected. I still keep walking in my grave clothes. confess that to God right now, whatever it is? Would you commit by His power to put that thing to death? I'm sure the Spirit of God is also speaking to you about some areas that you need to put off. Some things that you've just collected along the way. You've put them on like some old clothes. You've been wearing them. You've been wearing your guilt. You've been wearing your anger. You've been wearing filthy language. You've been wearing all this stuff. They're just grave clothes. And he's speaking to you today saying, it's time to put off these too. It's time to come out and walk in truth. It's time to come out and walk in the light of Christ.
It's time to come out and seek Christ because death has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. And one day, one day, death will be swallowed up in victory. But until that day, we will walk in life. Father, this morning, I thank you for speaking to us. I thank you that your word is just as alive today as it was in the day that the Apostle Paul penned it. That it's just as alive today as the day that Jesus walked on this earth. And so we hear your word today and we respond with obedience today. We will be a people who will walk alive. We will be a people who are putting some things off and putting some things to death that the world might see we have been resurrected. We are alive. And may we live it as a shout to the world that you have brought real resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory, for his sake, for his power within us. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand with us this morning as we worship?